Now, if you've been around our church, you've probably heard of the phrase emotionally healthy spirituality, how really it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. In other words, the ways that God meets us is actually through all of us coming before God and saying, God, take all of who I am. Now, I realize today with this word finance in the, in the front of this message, some of you are like, oh no, I hear about finance every day in New York City. Not again, especially not at church. Um, one pastor once said, if I preached about money as much as Jesus did because money and poverty were the top two topics that Jesus would teach about. If I, if I taught about money as much as Jesus did, no one would come to church anymore. So I recognize that for some of us, money might be very triggering, especially hearing it in a church context and wondering like, oh my goodness, what is this pastor guy going to talk about? At the end of the day, uh, our books are open as a church financially. We gave a financial update to our church uh, during the leadership community dinner a couple of weeks ago. And so I just want you to know that today, the sermon, yes, it's going to be about money. If you're not a Christian, welcome. Uh, We're going to talk about money today. And we're going to hopefully give you a vision of a Christian perspective and approach to money that I hope would be compelling to you in all of its different forms. Now, here we go. Look at what it says in the passage that was just read for us, because this is when the early church is born. So the early church is born. Jesus ascends to heaven. There's a bunch of no-name, unschooled, ordinary people who are gathering together. The Spirit of God comes. We call this Pentecost. People are so galvanized by the good news of Jesus' resurrection that even in the midst of being this oppressed minority in Rome, the people are basically beginning to proclaim that Jesus is alive. And look at what happens in this burgeoning community. Check this out. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Uh, all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And if you're wondering if this really happened, look, they even named names. Check this out. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. If you're wondering whether this happened, go check out Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So notice, what's happening is this galvanizing moment where the early church has experienced the wonder of God, healings and miracles are happening, and in the midst of this, there's this radical sharing of possessions. Now, I wanna make a quick note here, because some of you might be like, oh, there he goes again. This pastor guy is gonna talk about communism. Uh, now, or some of you, maybe you're, that's like, that came out of nowhere, Drew. Where, is that, where did that come from? Well, some people have maybe used this to espouse a certain kind of economic system. But the scriptures aren't, the way to approach the scriptures is there's two ways of reading it. One is descriptive, and the other is prescriptive. So this is a descriptive passage. It's just describing what was happening. Moreover, what you might notice is that the apostles, they don't tell the people who are following Jesus, you better give everything you have. They actually don't say that at all. 
It simply is a description of what's happening in the early church. Now, there are some passages that are prescriptive, that tell us what we should do and how we should think about things. But this passage is descriptive. Uh, Moreover, uh, in the scriptures, one of the commandments is thou shall not steal. The only way you can steal is if there's private property as well. So as a result, there's some capitalistic tendencies that also exist in the scriptures, but I'm not going to talk about capitalism versus communism in the scriptures. The reality is the scriptures embraces the panoply of of all these things, really this is just a description about money that I'm going to talk about here. Because here's what's extraordinary about what's happening in the early church, is that there's this radical sharing that's happening. People are, there's not only healings and miracles that are happening, there's a way in which it begins to affect their possessions. Now, check this out. This echoes what happens in Acts chapter 2. Look at this passage. Look at what it says. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. In other words, miracles are taking place. Some people call this revival is happening. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, isn't this extraordinary? Because it's easy to glance past these passages and be like, oh my goodness, an extraordinary move of the birth of the church is happening. Miracles are being done. Signs and wonders. People are being healed. Prophecy, prophetic words are being given. People are getting together and eating together and fellowshipping together every single day. And yet here's a sign of what revival looks like. It's that they're sharing with one another. And here's what these descriptive passages reveal. Revival actually isn't revival unless it touches your money. Unless your money gets involved. Now, here's the reality. Most of us, when we think of revival, we think of earnest prayer. Let's continue to pray together and fast for a seeking of God. Let's hunger and thirst for God. And we want revival to break out in this place. And yes, that is so true. What if I told you, though, that revival isn't revival unless it touches your cold, hard cash? Because oftentimes... It's unless something actually affects your money that we begin to discover where your treasure really is. Uh, When we talk about how it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, here's the thesis of today. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining financially immature. In other words, if I'm someone who I could preach great sermons, I pray for hours on end, I fast, I have a visibly demonstrative, when we worship, my hands are up in the air, extended. And yet, if I don't let God into this area of my money, I'm really not that mature. Now, there's three different buckets that we often talk about with the way that we approach money. And this is what we talk about whenever we um, teach on money. And it's these three buckets, give, save, and spend. To give first, then to save, 
and then to live off the rest. Now, most of the world around us, the, the order is probably spend, then you save, and then maybe you give what's left over. Especially as you think about your life in New York. I mean, most of us, isn't this how we approach things? When we budget, we're thinking, what do I spend on first more than anything else? And yet the way of Jesus, the reason why give is first is because it's the only thing we have to be able to throw money back in its face and basically say, I am not controlled by money. Money is not the thing that gives me comfort or approval or security or at least not the ultimate thing. But instead, I live generously first. Now, I realize spending first or saving first, that's how many of us operate. I grew up immigrant context. So much of the way that we approach money was you're never going to have enough. Never going to have enough. So even today, the kind of like what's in my mind is constantly, we don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't know if our kids are going to have enough. I don't know if our kids' kids are going to have enough. I don't know if our kids' kids' kids are going to have enough. Like that's constantly haunting me. Why? Because the story that I grew up with was this idea that we need to save as much as possible. So I'm actually not an opulent spender. Some of you can probably tell by the way I dress. But nonetheless, uh, I, I, I don't spend a whole lot. But many of you may not be aware of how deeply money affects me. Because I grew up in a setting where, like, money, there was just never enough. And so as a result, like, saving money, keeping money for myself, realizing that money is about me. And yet here's what generosity does. The reason why give is first is because we want to be a people who are not tethered to money as our source of security. But instead, in faith, we can give money, believing that God is in control of the universe. Now, I, I realize some of you are thinking, yeah, Drew, I get it. I knew it. This church dupes me, talks about grace. Then they're going to talk about money. And man, I know the reason why you're talking about money is so that you can buy more gray sketchers, you know? And that's, that's uh, this church I knew is just like every other church. Again, I realize there might be some triggers around that. Um, I've been very open. I make, as a senior leader of this church, I make $76,000 a year. So that's how much I make. Um, we're very open about that. So um, now some of you are like, well, how do you live in the city then? How do you, how do you guys live? Well, my wife, <laughs> she makes more. And she makes it off different investments. She actually owned an apartment before I, we got married. So like, so listen, I, I, I'm not preaching this sermon because I want your money, okay? I don't need your money. I got my wife. <laughs> yeah. I don't need your money. Again, our books are open as a church. I mean, the only thing, Steph Kim might be driving around a Ferrari one day, but who knows? No, I'm just kidding, Steph. I don't know. <laughs> She's probably the least likely to be driving around a Ferrari. But listen, we don't need your money. I don't want this, I don't want anything from you. I want this for you. Because here's the thing, every single one of us, even if I'm talking about give, save, spend, most of us are just like, yeah, but I can't give. I'm still, I'm still a student, or I still got debt that I'm paying off, or I'm really enjoying living where I live right now. I mean, this is what we're doing. Each one of us, if I were to ask any single one of us, like, tell me about your money and your spending habits and things like that, most of us would be like, yeah, I, you know, this is how I spend my money, but at the end of the day, I'm not as bad as those people who live in the Upper East Side. You know, those people, like... <laughs> 
I mean, isn't it true? Like when it comes down to it, but notice, here's what Jesus says. Look at what he says when he talks about money. In Matthew chapter six, this is what he says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice, he doesn't say where your heart is, there your money will be. Why? Because if I were to sit down with any single one of us, all of us would basically be like, honestly, my heart is to be generous. I want to be kind. I'm just waiting to make enough money so that I could be generous. You know, if, if, if I had what that person had, then I would be generous. I mean, isn't that how most of us approach this? My heart is in the right place. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, see, it's not enough to have your heart there. Because where your treasure is, where your money is, where your cold, hard cash goes, that is where your heart is. And in fact, if every single one of us were to take inventory of our own hearts, where would our hearts, where would our money say we are? Now, I recognize some of us grew up with different financial habits or whatever else that may have skewed where we are today uh, whether it's debt or other things that have crippled us. Now, in the, in the beginning of the new year, we're offering courses on managing money. We want to come alongside you. So I recognize that people are on the journey as it relates to this idea of giving, saving, and spending. But we, I want to encourage you that money is central. This is why Jesus talks about it so frequently. Because money is often a proxy for your life. It represents where your heart is. Uh, now, again, I realize some of you are like, oh, this church, I can't believe they're talking about this. I, listen, I love our church. And I realize some of that might sound self-promotional for me to say that as a senior leader, but I love our church. And uh, in 2019, our church actually, we began a process of purchasing a property in Midtown on 31st and Park. It's the hub. Some of you uh, aren't aware that we purchased it in 2019. We did a full renovation. Some of you and your groups meet there week to week. We called the campaign when we were purchasing this building. We called it For the City Campaign. And the reason why we called it For the City is because we said, hey, everyone, we're actually purchasing a building in Midtown Manhattan, and we're purchasing it for the city. In fact, our church will only use it 20% of the time. And guess what? Our church fell for it. People actually gave generously. Uh, We don't even meet in that building on Sundays. There's other churches and organizations that do. Our church uses the building maybe 20 to 30% of the time. Now, our building manager just did an analysis of comparative spaces in that same neighborhood in Midtown and the rate that we offer for nonprofits as well as churches. And here's what he surmised. Here's what the number that we came up with. From January to September, 62 different organizations and churches have actually used the space, and we've saved them $200,000, close to $200,000 so far from January to September. We did it because... We did this campaign, not for Hope Church NYC. We said for the city. That we wanted to be a place that would live generously first. So close to $200,000 that we've saved different organizations that we've donated to them so that they could meet in a space in Midtown. Now, in addition to that, in 2023, our budgeted giving, which we're probably going to hit and exceed, hopefully, if we hit our extending hope goals, the budgeted giving amount to local causes as well as global causes, serving uh, homeless populations, um, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry all throughout our city, uh, helping teens and the next generation, 
our budgeted giving is $277,000, close to $277,000. That means this. Now, again, I think we're going to hit it if we can meet our extending hope goal where we're inviting people to give above and beyond. Now, this number is close to half a million dollars. And you know who did it? You did it. You did it. I love our church. I love that we can live generously. I love that over and against the ways of this city, that we can be a people who say we want to live generously first. So high five your neighbor and say we did it. Now, do you know, was there one person that gave half a million dollars? No. If you'd like to, just come talk to me later. I would love to hear how we can partner together. No, we did it. We did it. I love our church. Now, this is simply the three congregations in East Village, Westside, and Midtown. We've started over 35 churches all over the world, many of them in the city that are thriving now and doing the same of living generously. You know who did it? We did it. Not one person, but we as a community, over and against the ways that the city often operates. Now, what does this mean? Here's some next steps for us. Here's what I want to say. Number one, if you are not giving, for those of you not giving anything, I'm going to challenge you to start giving. Give something. It takes the whole family to make it happen. Here's the reality. Some of you weren't even around when Hope Midtown started. I'd love to show you this picture. It's a picture from 2014 that was taken in August of 2014 across the street at Turtle Bay Music School, which no longer exists. Uh, anyone was around our church back then? Can you just raise your hand? Stephen Sue, yes. Our kids here, Daryl Romano. In fact, yeah, Daryl is, is in this picture. Daryl's in this picture. Jeannie... Choi, who now became Jeannie Park, married Pastor Mike Park. Uh, when she was single, she was in this picture. There's a group of about 14 to 15 people in this picture. Um, they're all praying that God would start something new, that we would be a generous, generative community in Midtown that would extend to the nations. This group, who many of you may have never met before, never will ever see again, some of them have moved to faraway places like Seattle, <laughs> James and Annie Chi. Some have moved to Westchester like Chris and Cynthia Bell. Some have moved to California. And there's actually, in this picture, there's Ricardo and Deanna Santos, who are part of that initial team. Daryl Romano, uh, one of our small group leaders in the Upper East Side, was part of that initial team, praying, believing, investing and sowing. This church would not exist without their generosity. We are all standing on the shoulders of their generosity. Ricardo and Deanna Santos, Ricardo passed away earlier this year. They're natives of the city. They live nearby. Their prayer was that a church would start in their neighborhood in Turtle Bay. And we were an answer to prayer. 
faithfully Ricardo and Deanna would give. In fact, even after Ricardo passed away, Deanna, it's hard for her to come to services because of some health issues. But without fail, every Advent season, she's saying, are we doing Extending Hope again? Because I just want to support the work that's happening at our church. I love our church. We're all standing on their generosity. And the generations that follow us, like these kids in the front row, two of which are mine, um, they will be standing on our generosity. And as long as I'm in the position that I'm in as a pastor of this church and as our leadership is here, I hope that the legacy that we want to live in a city like this is that we are generous to the next generation and to those who come after us. Whether you like it or you don't, all of us are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before. God has been doing a work in New York far before us. We are the recipients of generosity that has gone years before us. And the challenge that I want to make to you, if you're not giving, I'm going to challenge you, would you start to give? to so deeply because the whole family is who makes this happen. Now, secondly, the group that I want to talk to, if you're giving, I want you to give more. Now, I realize some of you are like, really? Are you serious? I thought you were going to commend us. And I do commend you. Believe me, I do. My wife and I, we have an automatic withdrawal that comes out. And the reason why we have an automatic withdrawal that starts at the very beginning of the month it's not because I'm this holy person, because I realize that if this thing doesn't happen automatically, I'm basically going to spend it or save it. And so as a result, as a way of just kind of surrendering, we, we want to give. But every year, we're prayerfully considering, how can we give more? Now, 10% is used throughout the scriptures, this idea of tithing. It's used at different moments of giving 10%. Um, to God. Now, in the New Testament, it says that everything belongs to God. So where is it? 10% or everything? Well, the reality is I often recommend 10% because 10% gross, especially in the city, it hurts a little bit. And in many ways, the scriptures talk about sacrificial giving, being people who sacrifice. Again, doing this first, being a people who say, I'm going to give this first. Then I'm going to save, and then I'm going to live off the rest. Uh, one mentor, he once said to me, I've never met someone who's told me that being generous has ruined my life. Never met someone that way. Why? Because generosity is something that we all aspire to be, and yet what it takes is actually doing it. And so if you're giving right now, I'm going to challenge you. I want you to give more. Now, here's the reality. You all know, you've been part of Hope Church. You all, whenever we talk about money here, you hear the same line, right? Hey, if you're new here, don't feel obligated to give. We're just so glad you came today. Those of you who have been investing here, we just want to say thank you. Very rarely do I come on this strongly about money. And in fact, many times, uh, I was fearful of talking about money because I don't want to offend anyone. But here's the reality. Here's what I know about money and what I know about you, what I know about me, is that money is that thing that for every single one of us, Every single one of us. It's that thing that creeps in, and none of us would say that we're more greedy than those people. And this is why Jesus constantly talks about watching out for this kind of greed. If you're already giving, I want to challenge you to give more. Now, 
look at how Luke describes the early church in Acts chapter 4. He says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that, that there were no needy persons among them. What I love about how this description works, it talks about how God's grace was present in the midst of people who are giving away their wealth and people who are receiving their wealth. Now, most of us, when we think about grace, we think it has this downward trajectory, right? It's only those people who are in need, who are impoverished, who are recipients of grace, Isn't that true? I mean, most of us, we think, oh, yeah, it's only those who are pitied that need grace. And it's true that many New Yorkers, when it comes to admitting we have needs or financial needs, we have a benevolence fund at our church. Whenever someone comes to us with a request or if they recommend someone with a request, we will take that and we actually process a way that we can provide care and financial resources for them. And I'll tell you what, it's so difficult for New Yorkers to admit I have needs right now. I'm having a hard time making ends meet. But there's a grace in being able to say that. But why is it that grace is actually used for not only the recipients of the the needy people who are recipients, why is it that grace is also used to describe those who are giving and selling and giving away their money? Why? See, there's this equalizing news of the good news of Jesus. See, the gospel of grace says this. This is what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, whether you're rich or you're poor, no matter how many financial resources you have, what it means to be a Christian is to be poor in spirit is to have a kind of humility that's able to say before God, God, I need you. I need you when I have nothing. And I need you when I have a lot. Either way, I need you. I need you, God, to be generous. I need your grace to be generous. And giving is actually a way, a manner for me to practice a kind of humility and dependence of saying, I don't need money. I need you. This is why, look at what Jesus teaches when it comes to those who do have wealth and those who are rich. Look at what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why does Jesus say this? Because let me tell you, I mean, we're a church in Midtown Manhattan. The reality is every single one of us have some sort of means and some sort of way that we're upwardly mobile, whether it's the the schools that we went to, the capital that exists within previous generations, the money that you earn now. Why is it so hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God? You know this, I know this, because we are the smartest, best, most talented, wealthiest people in the world. We don't need God. We can do our little religious duty on Sundays, but at the end of the day, come on, you're too smart. You went to the best schools. You are the the brightest, the smartest, the best looking, and so on and so forth. But that's why it's so hard. That's why it's so hard to be generous. Because my money tells me that, you know what, I am all that. I don't need God. I don't need other people. I'm a New Yorker. I've got my Metro card. 
Okay, maybe that wasn't the, the best example of someone who's wealthy, but nonetheless, you know. I mean, isn't it true, though? You and I, we're so self-sufficient. We're so smart. Went to the best schools. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, with the gospel, all you need is need. But most of us don't have it. One of the reasons why we're not generous enough is because we don't, we don't need God enough. We have our money, and that's what we hold on to. We have our pedigree, our academic pedigree. We have our inheritance, whatever it might look like. The invitation for me and for you, see, more than simply being a money problem, it's always been about our hearts, the posture of our lives, a willingness to say, God, it is better. It is better to have you in my life, to trust you, and to believe that when I can live generously first, I know that you will take care of every need. What is God calling you to today? What is God calling you to surrender? Can you and I, can we all just admit our need for him and say, God, we need your grace to become radically generous in the face of a city that is anything but generous.